0: As I mentioned last week, we're taking a break from our study in Zechariah to go through a study this morning on the mystery of Israel. Paul, the apostle, lists at least nine mysteries. Some break it down, different numbers. It doesn't really matter how many. It's not specific uh, importance to the number necessarily. But Paul was revealed things by God. It seems to be at that moment when he was called up to the third heaven. Because he tells us that while that happened, he received things that were inexpressible. Some things we don't get to know, because even Paul couldn't work out a way of, of communicating what he'd experienced and what he'd seen. But clearly Paul was a uh, recipient to knowledge, information, that previously he hadn't understood, and that seemingly the church hadn't understood, and certainly the nation of Israel hadn't understood. And Paul takes it upon himself to... Act as a teacher to reveal these things. And, and there's a number of things specifically that Paul will speak about. He speaks about the mystery of the resurrection. He speaks about communion in the first Corinthians chapter 11, a passage we're very familiar with. He says that, you know, I deliver unto you that which I received from the Lord. Paul wasn't there in the upper room and yet the Lord revealed to him personally what had taken place in the upper room. And again, things regarding the The resurrection, the rapture of the church, many, many other things that the Bible speaks about. The mystery of godliness is another one of those mysteries that I mentioned. But the mystery of Israel is another one that Paul alludes to. What is the mystery of Israel? Well, first of all, the word "mysterion" in the Greek doesn't mean something that we can't know, we don't know. It's the idea is something that was once hidden that is now revealed. So all of those mysteries, nine or however many you wish to to count in the New Testament, and you've only got to go to a concordance and just put in mystery and you'll see a number have come up where this word is used. This this one here that Paul shares with us is something that is vitally important to the church for us to understand because sadly for most of the last 2,000 years, the church has been largely ignorant of this truth. In fact, if you go to any... Library or, you know, if you've got a library of Christian books, you may have a book called Systematic Theology. And typically a systematic theology is a book that lists all of the key doctrines of the things we believe. And there'll be various subjects in there. There'll be, these are great fancy words, but soteriology. That's just simply the study of salvation. There'll be eschatology. That's the study of the last thing, the end times and various other things. There's demonology, angelology, and all these kind of things. And they're just specific categories that have been broken down that, as Christians, are kind of foundational doctrines in our faith. The incredible thing is, in almost every single one of these uh, areas of study, and these, these books that you can buy on systematic theology, they all omit probably one of the biggest subjects in the Bible. And in fact, five-sixths of the Bible deal with this subject of Israel. Arnold Fruchtenmaum did his PhD writing a book called Israelology, The Missing Link in Systematic Theology, highlighting that all of these great works, and many of them are great, they all miss out this key issue, this doctrine in Scripture. Most Bible colleges today will not and do not teach about Israel and their place in God's plan. I'm not sure today, I can't give you an exact number, but of all the Bible Colleges, seminaries, and so on in the UK. And there are a number of those. The last count, there was only four that taught anything about Israel. Most of them either ignore the subject or they'll teach that God has finished with Israel, has no plan and purpose for Israel. That Israel, and, and this is interesting because this is exactly what the Muslims believe. Islam believes that Israel were chosen of God but that because of their unbelief, they forfeited the blessings that God had pronounced upon them. And those blessings now divulge in other ways. And the church is typically because the Catholic church had this idea, and the Anglican church never really addressed it, and all those other groups that came out of the the Anglican church, the Church of England, be it the the Methodists, the Baptists, Lutherans, all of these different groups, and the Lutherans weren't part of the Church of England, I'm not saying they were, but all of these other denominations, they never really went back and addressed this issue of Israel and Israel's importance in God's plan. So we are in a church, and in a country, in a world that largely is ignorant of Israel and their place. So what we want to do this morning is just try and look from a biblical perspective as to what does the Bible say? is this an important issue for us? Should we understand these things in the light of what's going on in the world today? Or has God brushed Israel aside because of their disobedience? And there are many, in fact, I would say the majority of churches today that would hold that position. It's typically referred to as replacement theology, the idea that the church has replaced Israel. And most churches are say in this country today, will hold to that position. Whether they teach it or not, that's the position typically the ministers will hold and it's the underlying view. But let me ask you this question. If there was a people who had been brought into existence as a sign and as a witness of the existence of God himself, if you like a vessel to bring about his purposes... If such a people were to exist, what do you think they would look like? What do you think they would be like? And what would become of them? Well, they would surely be different and stand out from all other people on earth. They would be, of course, loved by those who follow and honor God and hated by those who reject God. They would know the greatest blessings but also be subject to to the greatest scrutiny on account of their privilege and responsibility. Well, that, of course, describes the nation of Israel, the biological descendants of Abraham. The Bible makes it very clear that Abraham was called specifically and directly by God himself, and that through Abraham and his descendants, God would reveal himself to the world that he would reveal his plan of salvation through the Jewish people. Paul makes the point in Romans that the Bible itself, the word of God, has been given to us by the Jews. God used the nation of Israel to give us his word. And God decreed that because of this, the nation of Israel would be blessed and that it would endure forever. And that's a very contentious point for many people. But we can't get around the fact that Jesus was born into a Jewish family. He was raised as a Jew in Israel. As a result, God's promise to Abraham is that those who will bless his descendants, the nation of Israel, would be blessed. But those who don't would be cursed. We're going to talk about a number of covenants, agreements that God has made. Now, some covenants, some agreements are conditional. If you do this, then this. And there's one of those specifically we'll highlight later. But there's also a number of covenants that God makes that are unconditional. And we're very grateful that God does that because we are all beneficiaries of salvation because of an unconditional covenant that God has made. The covenant that God has made is that if we Believe in Jesus Christ. If we confess with our mouth, believe in our hearts, and that God has raised him from the dead, that his blood was shed to cleanse us of our sin, we will be saved. That's it. It's unconditional. We don't have to do anything other than believe. No effort is required on our part. Once we accept that free gift of salvation, it is eternal. God makes it very clear that we are given eternal life. If it could be taken away at any point, then it wouldn't be eternal to start with. So that's a covenant that God has made, that that he has done all the work. But that agreement is in place, and we are beneficiaries of that. But the same applies in regard to the nation of Israel, and specifically with the people. So in Genesis 12, this is really where it begins, in regard to Israel. God's plan of salvation, of course, begins from before the foundation of the world, and we read a lot about it in Genesis 3 and onwards. But in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, Abraham, as he was then known, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I'll bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Look at that last statement. God promises blessing for those that bless Abraham's descendants, and cursing for anybody who chooses not to bless them. That has a huge implication on what is going on in the world today, and the world's attitude regarding the Jews. It's no secret that the Jews have been Hounded and hunted more than any other people group on the planet. They make up one one one-thousandth of the earth population. And yet, incredibly, they've been blessed beyond measure. You've only got to do a quick Google search and see how many Nobel Prize winners have come from Israel. How many great inventions have come from Jewish stock. Some of the world's greatest scientists have come from the nation of Israel. In Jeremiah 31, we read this. Thus says the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, which divided the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Right? So God's just making it ridiculous. Really this is the, you know, who God is. God is the one that said this. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Now, this is clearly a statement that is not based upon anything other than God's choosing of this nation and his promise to bless them that he gave to Abraham. God says, if the sun and the moon are still there, I'm still going to watch over and keep the nation of Israel. We're told in Psalms that he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And here we're told that Israel will never cease from being a nation before God, regardless of what the world says, forever. And clearly, it's in regard to national Israel, these things you can't make shoehorn and fit the church. It doesn't work that way. You see, but God's covenant with Abraham was not just regarding his descendants. It was also regarding a very specific piece of land. It was the one piece of land in the entire earth that God claimed as his own. God has never said that the British Isles are his, that this land belongs to God. But for this particular piece of land that's in the Middle East, God said, it is my land. And he gave it as a permanent possession to Abraham and his descendants. This also has a huge impact on what is going on in the world, and certainly what we've seen over the last 2,000 years regarding that piece of land. It's probably the most fought over piece of land in the world. From the the time of the Babylonians conquering the land, and then the Greeks, or the, the Persians first, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. Then, of course, through the time of the Ottoman Empire. And then the dividing up of the land by the French and the British and so on. The Roman Catholic Church has tried to lay claim to the land. The Crusades were all part of that. It's incredible history regarding a piece of land that is not particularly special. It doesn't have any major natural resources. And it has now, of course, become one of the largest fruit producers on the planet. That's in itself fulfillment of prophecy. But it's incredible that this piece of land has been so fought over. So we read about this covenant of the land. And we read from Genesis 13 here. God says to Abraham, this is after uh, Abraham and, and Lot separates because there's just too much livestock and so on. So God, Abraham says, "You go that way, and I'll get you." They, they agree to separate, and God says, "Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it." So notice that all the land that you can see with your eyes, I'm going to give it to you, and to thy seed for a short time, no, forever. It's really clear. No ambiguity here. And I will make of thy seed as the dust of the earth. There's a promise to bless the Jewish people here. So that if any man can number the dust of the earth, then thy, shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land, and in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Notice the statement. God says, I will give it. You can't give something you don't have. God says clearly, this is mine, and I'm giving it to the descendants of Abraham. In Leviticus 25, it's even clearer. It says, the land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, God speaking, for your strangers and sojourners with me. The land of Israel, God says, this is my land. Why that piece of real estate? Well, I suspect if you do a little bit of study and look at the details from the, the following on from the flood, and of course the world's geography was changed because of the flood, but it seems to be the place geographically where the Garden of Eden once was. And this piece of land, God always seems to have a very special role for. Seemingly, in the future, it's going to be the central point of the whole earth from the prophecies we've already been looking at as we've gone through the minor prophets recently. Genesis fifteen eighteen, and we read again there, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. Notice, the Lord made a covenant that I have given this land from the river Euph- uh, of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. verse we'll 8 goes on, I will give unto thee unto thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Some people have this misunderstanding that the Canaanites had the land. It was their land. And that Joshua comes in and dispossesses them, and that's true. He does do that. And people say that it was wrong, that Joshua shouldn't have done that, it was the the Canaanites' land. No, it was not originally the Canaanites' land. The people that lived in this land originally, and we've got historical documentation, Bill Cooper in his study on the book of Genesis goes through and gives great, great background to this, that there was a line of kings and priests following on from the flood that ruled and reigned in Israel, Jerusalem particularly, for a 1,000 years. And it was only after that time that the Canaanites, the different tribes in the land, there was at least 10 different tribes, all moved into this land. Even the Philistines. The Philistines originally came from North Africa across the area of Cyprus and from Cyprus across to the mainland. They they weren't indigenous to that land. They moved into that land. No, it was God's land. And God said, I'm going to give it to Abraham and his descendants. Notice, I will give it to thee and to thy seed after thee. It's very, very clear. So this covenant is made with the people. The covenant is made with the land. But there's additional covenants regarding the city of Jerusalem and the monarchy, the kingdom. I am going to just read to you quite a lot from Second Chronicles here, so just bear with me, but these are really important verses. It's not every single verse in the, the chapter, but I'm going to just pull out some of the highlights here. And this is at the time that Solomon was dedicating the temple that he built. Then said Solomon, the Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick darkness, but I have built a house of habitation for thee and a place for thy dwelling forever. And the king turned his face and blessed the whole congregation of Israel and all the congregation of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has with his hands, notice this, fulfilled that which he spoke with his mouth to my father David. Now, I haven't got time to go into it in detail, but you want to read two uh, Samuel chapter 7, and you see the covenant that God made with David. And here, Solomon is saying about this covenant, everything that God has said, Solomon is saying that God has kept. Since the day that I brought forth my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city among all the tribes of Israel to build a house in, that my name might be there. Neither chose I any man to be ruler over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem. Look at this. God says, I have chosen Jerusalem. That is not true of any other city In the earth, God has chosen one city and said, I'm going to put my name there. This is my city. Well, that has a big implication to the rest of the world, doesn't it? That my name might be there. And I've chosen David to be over my people, Israel. And by the way, that's not just local at that point in time, because the promises that are made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 make it very clear. Seven times in that chapter, God says to David that I will give you the kingdom forever. Not just for a short while, forever. And not just if your descendants obey me. You no, know, this is forever. It's Unconditional. And I said, O Lord God of Israel, There is no God like thee in heaven nor in earth, which keepest covenant. Notice the statement that Solomon says, God keeps his covenant. God delights in keeping his covenant, and showest mercy unto thy servants that walk before thee with all their hearts. Thou which has kept with thy servant David, my father, that which thou hast promised him, and speakest with thy mouth, and hast fulfilled it with thine hand, as it is this day. Just reiterating, God has kept the promises that he made. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, that which thou hast promised him, saying... Now, Solomon saying, you've kept it to this moment, but keep it onwards, going forward. Keep it saying, there shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit upon the throne of Israel, yet so that thy children take heed to their way to walk in my law as thou hast walked before me. Now then, O Lord God of Israel, let thy word be verified which thou hast spoken unto thy servant David." But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Solomon just asked that question. God doesn't dwell on the earth, but he says, Behold, heaven and the heaven heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house, the temple which I have built. Have respect, therefore, to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication. Lord, just please listen to the prayer I'm praying today. O Lord, my God, hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee, that thine eyes may be open upon this house day and night, Upon the place whereof thou said that thou would put thy name there, to hearken unto the prayer which thy servant prayeth toward this place. And this is now the prayer he's is going to pray. Hearken therefore unto the supplications thy servant and of thy people Israel, which they shall make toward this place. And here we go. Hear thou from thy dwelling place, even from heaven, and when thou hearest, forgive There's a prayer here that that Solomon is praying, saying, Lord, you've made this promise, keep the promise, and when we pray, forgive us, Lord. If thy people Israel be put to the worst before the enemy, because they have sinned against thee. Notice this, a lot of people say God rejected Israel because they sinned. Yeah, they did sin. They were disobedient. And God brought judgment upon them, and we'll talk briefly in a while about that. But here... The prayer that Solomon prays is that God has kept his covenant. He will keep his covenant. And even if we sin against you, Lord, he says, if we put to the worst before our enemy because they have sinned against thee and shall return and confess thy name and pray and make supplication before thee in this house, then hear thou from the heavens and forgive the sin of thy people, Israel, and bring them again unto the land which thou gavest to them and to their fathers. By the way, The confirmation that God heard, acknowledged, and if you like, approved this prayer, was that following this prayer, God's presence came down in a spectacular way on the temple, so much so that everybody had to get out of there. The place was filled with the presence of God and smoke and so on. So we know that this isn't something that God says, no, I'm not going to answer that. God says, yes, I will do everything you've prayed, everything you've asked this day. And then Solomon goes on and carries on and says, when the heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against thee, acknowledging that Israel are going to sin, yet if they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin, when well, thou dost afflict them, then hear thou from heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel. When thou hast taught them the good way wherein they shall walk and send rain upon the land for thou hast given unto thy people for that thou hast given unto thy people for inheritance. Notice again, God's saying. Or Solomon acknowledging that God has given the land to Israel as an inheritance. If there be dearth of the land, if there be pestilence, if there be blasting, mildew, locusts, caterpillars, if the enemies besiege them in their cities of the land, whatsoever sore or whatsoever sickness there be, that what prayer or of what supplication soever shall be made of any man or of all thy people Israel, when every one shall know his own sore, his own grief, and shall spread forth his hands in this house, then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive, and render unto every man according to his ways. Real important point. Solomon says, don't just you know turn a blind eye. Render everyone according to his own ways. God is a just God. A number of times you'll find an expression used in the Old Testament that God gave to Israel double for their iniquity. That doesn't mean times two, it means an exact likeness. When you look in a mirror, you see a double of yourself, exact reflection. And God gave to Israel, in terms of the judgment he brought upon them, He allowed upon them, an exact likeness. For everything they did wrong, there was consequence. But it doesn't change the fact, as is being prayed here, that God had still chosen Abraham, he'd chosen the land, he'd chosen Jerusalem and the monarchy. None of those things were to change. Again, render every and to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest, for thou only knowest the hearts of the children of men, that they may fear thee to walk in thy ways so long as they live in the land which thou gavest unto our fathers. And then he goes on and says, If thy people, in the context if thy people, sin against thee, for there is no man which sin not, and thou be angry with them and deliver them over before their enemies, and they carry them away captives unto a land far off or near, uh, it just speaks of what happened with the Babylonian captivity and then finally with the Romans, the worldwide dysphoria, the way the Jews were scattered around the earth. If they'll be angry with them and deliver them over before their enemies, and they carry them away captives unto a land far off or far near. Yet if they bethink themselves in the land... Whether they are carried captive and turn and pray unto thee in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned, we have done amiss, we have done wickedly. By the way, look at uh, uh, Daniel chapter 9, and you'll find that Daniel prays this prayer. Daniel's words in chapter 9 are exactly what Solomon said we should pray as the Jewish people. If we are in this situation, this is what we will pray. Daniel prays this very prayer. If they return to thee with all their heart, with all their soul, in the land of their captivity, where they have carried them captives, and prayed toward their land. Daniel did that. Which thou gavest unto their fathers, and toward the city which thou hast chosen. Now notice again, this is a confirmation. The land, the city, and toward the house which I have built for thy name. Then hear thou from the heavens, even from thy dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause. And forgive thy people which have sinned against thee. Okay, so very clearly. Solomon is just reiterating everything that's been said through the Old Testament that was said to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David. Solomon is saying, God, you've been faithful in all those things. You've kept your promises, continue to keep your promises and remember us. And even if we disobey you, even if we are scattered around the world, that you will not forget us. And God acknowledges that in what then follows as I've already said. Now, I mentioned earlier that there are conditional covenants as well. In other words, you do this and I will do this. The law is one such conditional covenant. And it's very clear that in the giving of the law to Israel, God has said there are many things wherein if you do them, I will bless you. If you don't do them or do the opposite, then you will not receive the blessing. And one of the clearest places you find this is in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28, one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. Any critic or sceptic of the Bible really needs to read this chapter and then try and answer how these things have come to pass exactly as foretold some 3,500 or more years ago. I just want to read a few verses. <clears throat> if thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayst fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then, a case of notice is an if and there's a then, if you're not going to do all the things that God has said, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful, and the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues, and of long continuance, and sore sickness, and of long continuance. It doesn't sound good, does it? Uh, by the way, these, no one assumes that these plagues are transferred to the church. It's interesting that people that argue that the church is the new Israel never once seem to think that the plagues that were mentioned will well, been transferred to the church. It's only the blessings. It shows you how shallow thinking that is verse 60 goes on in Deuteronomy 28 moreover he will bring upon thee all the diseases of egypt or also all the diseases of egypt which thou was afraid of and they shall cleave unto thee also every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of this law with uh, so um, them will the lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed and if you be left few in number whereas you were as the stars of heaven for multitude because thou would not obey the voice of the lord thy god And it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught. And you shall be plucked from off the land whither thou go to possess it. And the Lord shall scatter thee among the people from one end of the earth even unto the other. And there thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. And among these nations thou shalt find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. But the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart, and failing eyes, and sorrow of mine. And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night, and shall have none assurance of life. Wow, doesn't this sound like the history we know of the Jewish people? I mean, this speaks of exactly what they went through, not just with the Romans and so on, but then down through the ages, and particularly when we get to the time of the Holocaust. Every Jew's life was hanging in doubt. God said... If you obey the law I'm giving you, there'll be blessing. But if you disobey, this is what's going to happen. And in the morning, thou shalt say, would God it were evening. And even thou shalt say, would God it were morning. For the fear of thine heart, wherewith thou shalt fear, and for the sight of thine eyes, which thou shalt see. I mean, this really is an incredible prophecy. See, for failure to obey the Mosaic law, Israel will be driven from the land of Israel. Israel will be scattered among all people from one end of earth to the other, which is exactly what we've seen. Their lives are hanging down. They were be in great distress. And this has happened to the letter. And yet Israel remains an identifiable ethnic group. Why? Well, because God had always promised that right from the start with Abraham, reiterated to Isaac and Jacob and to David and so on, and Solomon, as we've just seen, highlights these things. God made an unconditional covenant with the people the land, with the city, and regarding the monarchy. But contrast that, by the way, with the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Malachites. When was the last time you bumped into a Hittite? Or a Jebusite, or a Malachi? How many people trace their, their history? You know, there's a lot of these kind of programs and things that talk about you know, your, your family history and things. There's been a few on telly recently, you know, looking at where you know, our roots are. And it's amazing how many of those programs, people come up and you you realize that there's, there's Jewish descent and how passionately they hold on to that. I have no idea where I'm from. I think probably, probably, from history, you go back and it's likely to be Scandinavia. Maybe the Vikings or, you know, when they came over to this country. I don't know. I'm not really bothered either. But Jews, they're passionate about their heritage and their history. I know somebody that was born in Australia I met recently, but they're a Jew, and they identify as a Jew. They've been brought up in this country. They were born in Australia, but they see themselves as a Jew. They don't see themselves as British or as Australian particularly, but as a Jew. They really are a distinct group of people. Dave Torrance, in a great book uh his, I've got a copy of this at home, he, he makes this comment, he says, Despite wars, persecutions, repeated attempts to obliterate them, they have kept their peculiar identity. They have remained a people apart from the other nations of the world, a testimony to the preserving hand of God. And a quote from Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Despite all they've gone through, They're not consumed. We see the evidence of that. He goes on and says, The very existence of the Jews in history, together with all that has happened to them in their long, turbulent history, is proof that there is a God present and active through his Holy Spirit in history. By all normal, normal laws of geography, history, and ethnography, they ought, as a distinct race, to have disappeared long ago. In a book called Reluctant Witness by Stephen Hughes, he says, Stephen Hayes, sorry, he says, an eminent man once said the universal dispersion of the Jews throughout the world, their unexampled sufferings and their marvelous preservation would be enough to establish the truth of the scriptures if all other evidence was cast into the sea. He goes on and says, the survival of the Jewish people is the greatest proof of the existence of Almighty God. If there were no God in heaven, there would not be one Jewish person on the earth. Incredible statements. But of course, with all of this, the fact that Israel have been scattered around the world and so on, the Muslims say that that's because they've disobeyed God and therefore they're now cast aside. The majority of the Christian church to this day makes that case and argues that Israel no longer inherit these blessings. And that leads us to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. We haven't got time to go through all of it. But the question is brought up there, has God finished with Israel? Because there are so many that claim, despite what we've already seen, well, let's just have a very brief look at this. Is this a contentious issue or is it a key to understanding Scripture? I've already said the five-sixth of the Bible deals with the nation of Israel. That should get our attention to start with. Then the question is, has the church replaced Israel as God's chosen people? Certainly, Peter says that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. But does that mean that we've replaced Israel? And of course, the Jews did reject Jesus when he first came. As a nation, their leaders led them to... Cry, crucify. But then as a result of that, has national Israel blown it? And then what about those promises that we've already speaking about, spoken about made to national Israel regarding the people, the land, the monarchy, the city of Jerusalem? How are we to view the events today in the Middle East? Is there any significance from a biblical perspective or not? Okay, so Romans 11, verse 1, Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Right, this is great, because Paul asks the very question that we're asking right now. His answer is really, really simple, and this should put an end to it, because he says, God forbid. In other words, no. God has not cast away his people. He says, firstly, notice this. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, he says, I'm a Jew. You can't say God has cast away the Jews because I'm a Jew. So that doesn't work. See, the church began with Jews. The early church was Jewish. Exclusively Jewish. See, Paul was a Jew and he was a Christian. And he had no problem with that. In fact, he spent his entire lifetime in ministry telling people that he was a Christian and yet he never said that I'm not a Jew anymore see, God has not cast away the Jews because most of the early church is Jewish. So very clearly we can see that the statement, has God finished with Israel? Well, no, because much of the church was Israel. God didn't say, that's it, I've had enough with Israel. You have to disinherit, or you, have to, you, you cast off your, your history. It goes on in verse 2-4. through four. God has not cast away his people which he foreknew, What ye not what the scripture saith of Elijah? Now Paul is going to give us a great example here to make the point. How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. And then then Paul throws in this and says, but what does the Bible say? What, What saith the answer of God unto him? And God's response to Elijah, when he says, I'm on my own, I'm left the only one, God says, no, no, no. He says, I've reserved to myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Elijah, you're not on your own. There's another 7,000. It may be that the majority have rejected God at that point, but God's saying, don't worry, I've still got 7,000 plus you. In First Kings 17, we see Elijah on Mount Carmel. There's 450 prophets of Baal, and they go up against Elijah, and so on. And God gives Elijah this incredible victory, and so on. Elijah then flees for his life to Mount Horeb. And we read, And he came thither unto a cave, and lodged there. And behold, the word of God came unto him. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left and they seek my life to take it away. God's response. Yet I have left me 7,000 Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. You see, Paul makes the point here. As with Elijah, God had reserved some of Israel for himself. So in the early church, many Jews had become believers and were saved and had not been cast off. Even so, at this present time, there is also a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul says, even so, right now, there are a number of Jews which God has preserved just as it was with Elijah, now according to his grace. So the big question, what about national Israel then? And that's what Paul then does. He restates the question. What then? Israel has not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election has obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now it's just really clear if you just look at the wording. So the election, those reserved by God, in the example he's just given us with Elijah. Okay, Israel as a nation has not obtained what it sought. It hasn't obtained the blessings, the land, that everything that was promised to them that they would once in, they would one day inherit. But the election, as in those reserved by God, have attained it. And he says. Notice the statement here. And the rest were blinded, according as it is written. This is a quote from Isaiah 27, 10, and Isaiah 6, 9. God has given them a spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see and ears they should not hear unto this day. Now, we have to jump back a little bit into Luke 19 to understand the context of this, but Jesus makes a declaration in Luke 19 when he rides into Jerusalem that because Israel missed the day of their visitation, the day the Messiah presented himself as their king, their eyes would be blinded. Jesus effectively pronounces national blindness on the nation on account that they missed the day, prophetically given by Daniel, Gabriel through Daniel, that the Messiah would come. And he goes on, and the comment here is, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. So back into Romans 11 and verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Now this is starting to get the question a bit more refined. It starts off, has God rejected Israel? No, because it's a lot of the early church for Israel. So no. Well, what about the ones that, that were disobedient? And then he now narrows it down. I said, have they stumbled that they should fall? I mean, Firstly, no blindness was pronounced upon them. And the question is, in a sense, is this blindness permanent? that they very clearly, from the context, has to refer to those whose eyes have been blinded i e national Israel, and he says once again, God forbid, no, but rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy, there'll be no need to provoke them if God had just finished with them through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. You and I should be immensely grateful that Israel rejected Jesus, that they were blinded, because as a result of that, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, and we now have this privilege of being called in to God's family. So let me summarize. By the way, that's something that Paul typically says halfway through one of his letters. Finally, brethren. he's only halfway through, so don't get excited. We're not going to have tea and coffee just yet. Paul is addressing the issue of Israel. Many Jews have been saved, reserved, as just with Elijah. And again, that would include the majority of the early church prior to Paul's missionary journeys. The rest of Israel has been blinded due to their unbelief and rejection of Christ. But the blindness is not permanent. God has allowed it that salvation may go to the Gentiles. That's going to provoke Israel to jealousy. You see, if we don't look at anything else, straight away we can see that God has an incredible plan and purpose in this. That God had chosen Abraham and promised him and his descendants blessing. That God had promised them a land for them, for the nation, the biological descendants of Abraham. Had promised them the monarchy, the kingdom, and the city of Jerusalem, a place where of all cities on earth he placed his name and yes, they're in this state now where the majority were blinded, but it's not permanent, it's to allow the Gentiles to come in, that should immediately spark our interest and say, well, okay, there must be more to come. God must have yet plans for the nation of Israel. And we read this in verse 12. Now, if the fall of them be riches of the world, and the diminishing of them be riches of the Gentiles, you know, we are beneficiaries of the fact that they've been blinded. If that's been a blessing, notice what he says how much more their fullness. In other words, when their eyes are opened, how much more blessing will be to the world. If we're being blessed right now because they've been blinded, when Israel finally have their eyes opened, how much more blessing will come to the world? Again, through their blindness, salvation has come to the Gentiles, and that is riches indeed. To speak of their fullness would make no sense if they no longer have any part in God's plan. It's speaking of something that is yet to come. So national Israel's blindness is not permanent. Paul speaks of a time of greater worldwide blessing when national Israel is restored. Notice again that statement about provoking to jealousy to save some. You know, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are of my flesh, in other words, my family, that, and might save some of them. Paul was really desperate to see his countrymen, his kinsfolk, the Jews, saved. Verse 15 of Romans 11. For if the casting away of them be reconciled to the world, what shall be the receiving of them but life from the dead? Them again, speaking of national Israel. And then verse 25 of Romans 11. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Here we go, the mystery of Israel. Lest you should be wise in your own conceits. The blindness in part. What does it mean in part? Well, because some of the Jews did believe they became the church. But some of them were blinded. So, we have this mix right from the beginning the believing Jews and the unbelieving Jews. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Notice that until, I've said many times, indebted to Dr. Chuck Nisler for highlighting how important those untils are in the Bible. Here's one of the key ones until the blinded, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, what's going to happen? Well, just by implication alone, Once the Gentiles have come in, that blindness will be removed. And that's exactly what we read in verse 26. And so all Israel. What does it mean, all Israel? Well, the believing remnant and the ones whose eyes were blinded. All Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Notice the basis of all of this is a covenant that God has made with them. So Paul's distinction, of believing Israel and unbelieving Israel. Okay, God's remnant and the blinded. And when the fullness of the Gentiles are come in, both factions, if you like, will be saved. Both the remnant and the blinded. Galatians 6 verse 15 and 16 say, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. And a lot of people will say, oh, there you go. That's saying that the church is now the new Israel. Okay, firstly, that expression, the new Israel, is never found in the Bible. And what is this saying anyway? It's saying, look, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile if you're in Christ, but that you are born again. That's what matters. And then Paul says, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace be upon them. Who's them? The Gentile believers. If you walk according to this rule, you're blessed. If you're born again, if you're a Gentile believer, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. Who's the Israel of God? It's the Jewish believers. The ones that Paul's already spoken about in Romans, the ones who did believe. Rather than speaking of the church being the new Israel, this verse actually draws that demarcation and speaks of the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers, both brought together in Christ. They are God's remnant. Again, that example with Elijah. Okay, so God has blinded the eyes of national Israel, but it will not be permanent. The blindness will be removed and they will be restored. Then all Israel will be saved. Again, all, as we said, will be the remnant who are part of the church right now. And today that we would think of the Messianic uh, Christians or believers, Messianic Jews, and the blinded, those who currently are either ignorance, apathy, apostasy, whatever, their eyes will be opened. And Paul then says, For I would not, brethren, again, that you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own conceits. And he goes on and says about, as it is written, and he quotes from the scriptures once again, so much of the New Testament is rooted in the Old Testament. And he speaks about this covenant, notice verse 27, Then God will take away their sins. Now, not just the covenants we've seen already, but a new covenant. Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And by the way, you can't make that and fit the church because it says the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, their fathers it has to be national Israel in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Speaking of the law, of course. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Many believe that these promises have now been transferred to the church. Can these promises be transferred? Well, the promises, as we've seen already, were made to the house of Israel, the house of Judah. It's is an issue of God's integrity. Does God keep his promises? Notice Deuteronomy chapter 30. We saw Deuteronomy 28 earlier, but look what this says. Just a couple of chapters further on. It shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee. What things? The blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee. And thou shalt call them to mind among the nations, whether the Lord thy God has driven thee. In other words, God is saying, you aren't going to disobey. I've given you the rules for blessing. And the rules for disobedience, what's going to happen if you're disobedient and you're going to be scattered around the world? And then here in Deuteronomy 30, God says, when all this has happened, and you call them to mind among the nations whether the Lord thy God has driven thee, and shall return unto the Lord thy God and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy soul. That then. Really important. When these things happen, when you are scattered around the world, when you call out to God, then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee, if uh, any of thine be driven out to the uttermost parts of heaven. From thence will the Lord thy God gather thee and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee, notice, into the land which thy fathers possessed and thou shalt possess it. Why? Because God has made an unconditional covenant with them that this is their land, and thou shalt possess it. And it will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. It's not just going to be an intellectual thing. They are truly going to come to that place of knowing and worshipping and following God again that thou mayest live. Now, in 1948, Israel came back into the land. So we've seen this partially fulfilled already. That was the first regathering out of all the nations of the earth. And it continues today. Many Jews are still returning to the land every year, even with the whole situation in Ukraine. Many Jews from that country have gone back to Israel. However, Israel are not yet serving God with all their heart and soul. But Ezekiel wrote about this. He had a hope. Though Israel had been disobedient, And God had and would scatter them among all nations that God, for his name's sake, would bring them back to the land of their fathers. That land would then burst forth into life and God would put a new spirit in their hearts. And they would be his people and he would be their God. Now, for the sake of time, I'd love to read all of this through to you, but we'll come to the conclusion in a second. Please, these will be on the online later. Just take a moment just to go through and read this portion from Ezekiel 36 because God here out, outlines through Ezekiel what was going to happen, that they would be scattered around the earth, that God would his fury upon them for the blood they shed and so on. They would be, as you can see, verse 9, scattered among the heathen. Notice what God says. I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned. See, God is a just God. God couldn't just turn away and ignore their iniquity. So that which he decrees on them as coming to pass, and what would happen, is because of his nature, his character. And ultimately, as you see right at the end, the last line there, that they would be sanctified, that God would be sanctified in their eyes as well. But in verse 24, we read this, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. And God is going to give them, it says, verse 26, then, once that's happened, so two things, okay? Firstly, they'll be brought back into their land. Then they're going to be cleansed. Firstly, they'll be brought back in. But then, after that's happened, we go on in verse 26 says, and a new heart will also I give you, and a new spirit. We read much of this in Ezekiel 36, 37 goes on from here. That they'll come back into the land, but in unbelief. But then God is going to give them a new spirit. And God promises to bless them. I will multiply the fruit of the tree, the increase of the field. Again, we could read this and go through every single line here. Every one of these verses is significant and important. But that's exactly what's happened. The land was this barren wilderness before Israel returned. And now it's a land that is producing more fruit than almost any other place on earth. Again, God's promising to bless them. Verse 35, and they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden. And the heathen that are left round about, you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that that was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. See, God does this for his own glory. So the nations of the world will eventually be able to look on and acknowledge that God all along was working in and with and through the nation of Israel. In addition to those things, Israel and Judah will once again be joined together, brought back into the land of Israel. And once again, a king will rule over them, over the whole house of Israel. Solomon, by the way, was the last king to rule over all Israel, around about 1000 BC. Ezekiel is writing this in 587 BC. So I'm like 400 years down the line from this. And again, we won't go through every verse of this. But God again promising to bring them back. And notice verse 22 and there. And I will make them one nation, in the land, upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. No longer Israel and Judah, one nation. What is it now? One nation. We don't look at Israel and speak of Israel and Judah. We look at it and speak of the nation of Israel right now. And they're going to have one king. The Lord speaks of David being raised up to be king over them. And some people think that's a reference to the Messiah, that Jesus being the son of David. And there may be, Truth in that, I think probably will be David. It's crazy as that may seem. The Lord will raise up David once again. He'll rule over the house of Israel, and Jesus will rule over the whole earth from Jerusalem. But notice that these statements here. They shall dwell in even they and their children, their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. You see, you can't rewrite this any other way. This is what it is. God has promised blessing. Yes, because of their disobedience, blindness came upon them. So because these prophecies are so specific, they can't be ascribed to the church. They're regarding the land of Israel, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, the Davidic dynasty, which will last forever. And God will do this for his name as a sign. In the book of Isaiah... We're told that in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand as an ensign, a sign for the people. And to it shall the Gentiles seek. The world is going to look to Jerusalem where Jesus will be ruling. I thought so his rest shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day. The Lord shall send his hand the second time. When was the first? The first was 1948. That's the first time that the Jews were brought back from all nations. And people are going to come from Assyria, from Egypt, from pathros from Cush, Elam, so around today. Shinar, Iraq. Cush is the area of um, uh, Libya and so on. North Africa. And from the islands of the sea. That kind of covers everything we missed out there. And the God is going to bring them back. It shall an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather the together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew twenty four. We'll come there in just a second. Again shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt, and you shall be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel, and it speaks of them being brought back those that were about to perish in the land of Assyria, that we are blowing of a trumpet, and this is what we read in the New Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament just fit together so beautifully. Jesus himself quotes these scriptures. And there shall appear the sign. We just read about the sign. The Son of Man in the heaven. And there shall shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. We just read that from Isaiah. And they shall gather together his elect. Who is he speaking about? The Jews. From the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah those verses we've just read. In Matthew 24, we read this also, verse 32. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. It's always a symbol of Israel. When its branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is nice. So likewise, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. A lot of people have mused over this and come up with all sorts of very, you know, different theories of how long is a generation? Is it 40 years? Is it 70 years? And what's it saying? And trying to set dates and times. Well, we need to just look at what the actual word means. The word that's translated generation in English is jenea, which is simply age, generation, nation, or time. Well, that makes a lot of sense when we understand it in regard to nation. Speaking of the fig tree, speaking of the nation of Israel, I say unto you, this nation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. It's no secret that Muslim nations want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. They don't recognize Israel on their maps. They want to see Israel destroyed. Iran have openly made statements to that effect. As soon as they've got nuclear capability, the first thing they'll do is destroy Israel. (laughs) God says, no. This nation shall not pass. What nation? The fig tree, Israel, will not pass until all these things be fulfilled. They are an integral part of God's plan for the end times. Jeremiah 16, verse 14 and 15 just says, Be therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. As incredible as that was. But the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north. Now, typically, Israel's enemies have always attacked from the north. But also, interestingly, Russia is due north of Israel and from the lands where where he had driven them, and I will bring them again into the land that I gave unto their fathers. Now, the boundaries that that are given to Abraham go from the Mediterranean Sea up to the river Euphrates. Israel have never had all of that land. It came close under Solomon, but they've never had all of that land. Today, they have just that small part. Even that wasn't what they were promised when the land was divided up by the French and the British and so on. But God makes it very clear that he will get Israel back in the land. He speaks in Jeremiah 16 here of sending fishes that will fish them and sending hunters that hunt for them. They're going to be forced back into the land. Again, that's what we've seen as a result of anti-Semitism worldwide. The Jews have been literally forced out of countries and they've had to go to the only place they can, which is back to the nation, the land of Israel. But notice that before all that happens... We have this statement that Jeremiah says, Jeremiah sixteen eighteen And first I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double, because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of the detestable and abominable things. God says they will be judged for their unbelief and for all that they did, all the atrocities that were committed. And we've seen that happening. God has allowed judgment upon them. So the regathering of Israel back to the land for the second time will occur at the time of the second coming when Jesus returns. And God likens it to deliver it from Egypt in magnitude and says it's actually going to surpass it so that the former won't even be remembered. In Zechariah chapter 12. We'll get to this in a few weeks' time ourselves in our study. The burden of the word of the Lord of Israel saith, The Lord which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him, behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling and to all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and Jerusalem, and in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the people that are burdened, that burden themselves with it, and shall be cut in pieces. That all the people of the earth shall be gathered together against it. This is speaking of what is going to happen. The nations of this world will come together to fight against Israel and against Jerusalem. This is exactly what we read in the book of Revelation of what is coming. You see, understanding the biblical framework of God's plan for Israel helps us understand the world we live in, why things are going on that are going on right now, and what is also to come. And Jerusalem really is a cup of trembling. The governments of the world don't know what to do regarding the problem of Jerusalem. Three of the key Monotheistic faiths, obviously Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all claim the city of Jerusalem as being significant and vitally important and so on. Interestingly, I've said before this as well, that one-third of all UN resolutions have to do with Israel. That's crazy. One-one-thousandth of the world's population. And the UN focuses a third of its time on Israel. We could talk a lot more about those things and the injustices. But it should come to pass that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, the Messiah. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Two things. God is going to defend Israel and Jerusalem. And Israel's eyes will be opened and they will realize that Jesus is their Messiah. And it speaks of great mourning in Jerusalem and the judgment that's going to come. The the land shall mourn every family apart and goes on. Again, it can't be a subtle reference to the church. It's specific regarding the nation of Israel and what is to come. Again, Jeremiah 23, speaking of gathering together the remnant from the places that they've been scattered and setting up shepherds over them to look after them. Again, it speaks again. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper. Speaking of the Messiah. <coughs> Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Again, the focus is going to be on this incredible regathering of the people back to the land. And at that time, God is going to set a king over the whole earth who's going to execute judgment and justice. And that has been the hope of Israel. In Acts chapter 15, there was a council meeting held to discuss the whole issue of Jews and Gentiles and how were the Gentiles saved and so on. And they stand up and Peter stands up and James stands up and they talk to the people about the Gentiles being brought in. Verse 14, Simon Peter declared that God did visit the Gentiles to call out, a people of his own name but notice this after god has brought the gentiles in just as paul said in romans 11 after this i will return and build again the tabernacle of david and we've seen this again we've gone through the minor prophets and quoted this already which is fallen down god is going to reestablish everything that is broken down and has been lost that statement matthew chapter 2 bethlehem in the land of judah are there not the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. That hasn't happened yet. Jesus has never ruled over the nation of Israel, but he will. Again, Jesus said to the disciples that they would sit on the 12 thrones, or on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, that's not much of a promise if God has finished with Israel, is it? It only has any context in what we've been saying that God still has a plan and a purpose. Then that is a promise that had some weight indeed to give to the disciples, that they would be given this authority and time yet to come. On the road to Emmaus, those two were talking. this says, we trusted that it should have been he that should have redeemed Israel. Beside all this, it's the third day. Notice, they were expecting the Messiah to redeem Israel. That was their hope, that the Messiah would restore and reestablish the nation. John asked the question, Matthew 11, that when John heard from prison John the Baptist the works of the Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto them, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Because that was the Jews' expectation, that Jesus, when he first came, would fulfill all of those prophecies, and he would rule over them as king. John, disciples, the pair on the Emmaus Road, they were confused because they saw all the signs of the Messiah, but there was this not the deliverance that they were expecting at that time and that led the jews to have this idea maybe there's two messiahs isaiah 53 there's the the one that suffers in psalm 2 there's the one that rules with a rod of iron but of course we know we know that there's not two messiahs for israel there's two comings firstly the lamb of god that's why the shepherds came first then the lion of the tribe of judah that's why the magi came second to anoint jesus or acknowledge jesus as the rightful king after the resurrection, the disciples begin to understand, and yet they then ask Jesus the question about the, result, the role of the Messiah to deliver Israel and the throne of David. You know, Will there at this time, they go on? And by the way, that quote from Luke chapter 1, Gabriel made it clear to Mary that Jesus would rule on the throne of David. All these promises all tie together in what we've said. I mentioned earlier to Samuel chapter 7, repeatedly, this promise to David, that his kingdom would be forever. All the way through this. Forever, 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 forever. It goes on and on and on through that chapter 7. It's an incredible chapter. I leave you to read it in your own time. And again, Acts chapter 1, this is where I was going a moment ago. They were, therefore, they would come together. They asked him, saying, Lord, will thou this time restore the king to Israel? The disciples at the time of the ascension say to Jesus, right, kind of understand now that you had to die and you, you, your blood was shed for us, you were the sacrificial lamb. Okay, so now are you going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus, effectively, this is kind of the killer question, Jesus says, it's not for you to know when. Not, it's not going to happen. It's just not for you to know the times and the seasons. It is going to happen. And God will indeed do this. Lo, the days come, Jeremiah 30 says the Lord that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah. And I'll cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers to possess it. Many, many other scriptures here all say the same thing. Again, we've said that that verse already from Jeremiah 31. But the sun and the moon are still there. We know God has not finished with Israel. He will not give up on Israel. So our conclusion, we have got there. This is the conclusion. The church has not become the new Israel. The phrase the new Israel is never used in scripture. Whilst Israel has paid the price for breaking the Mosaic Covenant, The Abrahamic covenant regarding the land, the Davidic covenant regarding the throne, the covenants regarding the city, the people, they're all unconditional. And Christ has yet to sit and rule on the throne of David, but he will. Israel will never cease to be a nation before God. So the why question, does it matter what our position is regarding Israel? Well, yeah, because it will affect our view of scripture, both in regards to the promises that God makes and keeps, And our understanding of what is to come. We're commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And it makes so much sense of the world that we're living in now. Israel really is God's timepiece. Dave Hunt said this. If the Bible is in error concerning Israel, it's major subject. Then all of the synagogues and Christian churches that claim to base their beliefs upon these scriptures ought to admit the fact and shut their doors. If, however, the Bible is true, then the nations of the world ought to govern their conduct accordingly. For if, they do not, uh, sorry, for if they do not, the consequences will be disastrous. That says everything. And one final quote. Queen Victoria once posed this question to her Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli. She asked, can you give me one verse from the Bible that proves there is a God? He thought for a moment and responded, I can give you the answer in just one word. What is it? She wanted to know. The Israeli replied, the Jew, your majesty. Let's spell hearts. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to review these things, to see your incredible faithfulness regarding your people Israel, your plan that was laid down, that through the descendants of Abraham, you would bring a savior into this world, the Messiah. You would bring your word into being, that we would have a copy of your word, which reveals your character, your nature, your goodness, your grace, your mercy. And that you have promised, Lord, to keep the covenants you have made with your people Israel. And you've told us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And Lord, as we live right now in this turbulent world, we recognize that so much of what is going on around us is part of your plan to keep your promises to your people. Father, we thank you that you're a faithful God and that your promises to your people Israel are as steadfast and sure as your promises to each one of us. Lord, may we continue to grow in grace and knowledge, for we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.